I will be reading Psalms 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is a great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you very much, Layla. Charlie Tremendous Jones said this, you will be the same person in five years as you are today, except for two things, the people that you meet and the books that you read. This book is the most influential book in history. It's the story of God's dealing with man. It is his story. It's God's recorded uh, events of life on planet Earth. It starts in the beginning. It concludes with a peak into heaven's eternal glory. It tells the story of great men and great women of God. Sometimes the stories are inspirational. Sometimes they are tragic. From Adam's rib to Moses's mountain to David's sin to Elijah's triumph, the stories reveal God's grace and his goodness and his gifts. Some wonderful songs are written in this book to help us worship. Powerful proverbs are written in this book to encourage us into right living and discourage wrong choices. Great prophecies are also provided to show God's omniscience and insight into the future. The story of the Messiah is told in this book and how the history of a young church progressed and is recorded. Personal letters are included. Faith-filled men challenged and convicted and corrected and consoled and counseled a people of God by the words written in this book. It has changed and shaped and molded and mapped eternal destinies for more people than any other book in history. The Bible was written in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years in 15 different countries on three different continents by over 40 different authors. All of the authors were from different walks of life. Some were kings, some were fishermen, some were shepherds, priests, tax collectors, doctors, men from every rank of society. It was written from prisons and also from palaces. It was written in peacetime and in wartime. It was written in captivity and in wandering. It addresses controversial topics in, in history and poetry and prophecy. And it's all those things rolled into one. Despite the differences, it contains a unity of purpose and tells one amazing story, the story of redemption from beginning to end. That's the story. None of its authors contradict one another. They all are in harmony and agreement on the contents of the story, even when they write from different perspective with different details. The the Bible is a survivor. It survived tremendous persecution over the centuries. Its existence today only confirms its importance and divine truth. In AD 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian commissioned a special army to search out and destroy this book. Every copy that was found was wiped off the face of the earth. And when the task was completed, Diocletian was so impressed with what this task force had done that he issued medals 
to this army that read this way, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of gods is restored. But within, within just a decade, Another emperor came into power. This emperor was a Christian. His name was Constantine. And Constantine offered a reward to any person who could bring him a copy of the Bible. Keep in mind, this was before printing presses. Every copy was printed by hand. Hadn't they all been destroyed? Hadn't Diocletian done his work? And yet within 24 hours, within 24 hours, Constantine was delivered 50 copies of this book. It's the most quoted, the most published, the most translated, the most read book ever. Three out of four books are published and forgotten about within a year. Only half of 1% of books remain in demand seven years after they are published. But this book, it really is the bread of life. It really is living and active. It really does penetrate to soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It really does judge the thoughts and attitudes of the hearts of the people who read it. It bewilders, in light of all of that, why people have lost trust in this book. The common fodder right now goes something like this. Oh, this book, it's a made-up story. The writers just wanted a little bit of control, a little bit of power, and so they took an obscure historical figure named Jesus, and they hijacked him, and they built up a legend around him to pass him off as God, and they wrote it all into this book, and it's a fable. It's not history. It's fiction. And when you bring up the Bible, they'll say, the Bible, hasn't that already been proven false? And when you're on social media, that will be the case on Reddit, on Facebook, maybe even talking to some of your friends. Trust me, the Bible has taken on heavier opponents over the centuries than Reddit and Facebook. We're going to talk a bit, little bit today about why we can trust this book and why the idea that we can't trust it won't last. Diocletian didn't win and Reddit won't win either, okay? Skeptics of Scripture are actually nothing new. When we read about Jesus' own disciples, we read of skeptics, people who did not necessarily believe the Bible. In Luke chapter 24, there's, there are two men, and they are walking along the road, and one of uh, their names is Cleopas. We don't know the, the name of the other. But they're walking along the road. They're traveling away from Jerusalem after the crucifixion of Jesus. This is actually Sunday, the day that Jesus has risen. But they don't know that. They're walking away from Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, this guy begins to walk with them. He just materializes. He starts walking with them. And unbeknownst to them, it's Jesus himself. And they begin whining to this guy that they don't know is Jesus about their Lord, Jesus, being crucified. We had hoped that he was the one to come and redeem Israel, but he's been dead three days now. And so we've lost all hope. We don't believe. And Jesus, as he's walking along with them, issues an unexpected response. He says, you fools, you're so slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And that's Jesus' way of saying, you didn't believe the Bible. You didn't believe that the Bible was telling the truth about me. And Luke tells us that Jesus turned to Scripture. It says that beginning with Moses and the prophets and what they wrote, he taught them everything that pointed to him. And when they were given evidence that Jesus gave them, they retired their skepticism and they exercised faith 
in Jesus. As we have covered a, very, a lot of different topics in this Why Christian series, we're going to cover a lot different topics come in the coming weeks, right? But one of the main reasons we're doing this is because you're in the world with a lot of people who may not necessarily agree that there is a God. They may not necessarily agree that this book is true. And one of the best questions that we can ask non-believing people is this, if Christianity is shown to be true, would you become a Christian? That's a great question because it reveals where they're coming from. If they say, oh yeah, if you can prove it's true, then yeah, I'll, I'll give it a hearing. That's one thing. But if they say, I don't care if it's true, I'm still not gonna become a Christian. That tells you another, doesn't it? tells you where their heart is. And it tells you that it's not about information, it's about suppression of the truth. And that will lead you to love them well as time goes on. And it will lead you to know what to say and and what not to say. And so there's a second question concerning our subject today, the Bible. And it goes like this. If the Bible can be shown trustworthy and reliable by the standards of historical research, will you consider that it might be true and allow it to change your life as it has for millions of people throughout history? That's a great question. And for you to show somebody else that the Bible is true, that we can rely on it, that it is trustworthy to open up the scriptures for somebody else, just like Jesus opened up the scriptures for these two on the road. You don't have to be Jesus to be able to do that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you several reasons why we can trust this Bible today. And I want to make it easy for you to be able to do the same when you're talking to people. So all of our words today start with E because it's easy. Yeah, yeah, you got it. You got it. Okay. Why can we trust the Christian scriptures? First of all, we have early testimony, early testimony. The earlier the sources of any ancient writing, the more accurate the testimony. And when it comes to the Bible, here's the deal. We don't have any of the original manuscripts that it took that when, when Luke wrote, we don't have that. We don't have those. But what we do have is abundant and accurate copies of the originals. And the question that any antiquity person has to ask when they come to a text of antiquity is, are the copies, are the earliest ones early? Are they, how close are they to the original writings? And so all significant literature from the ancient world is reconstructed into its original form by comparing all the manuscript copies that have survived. All the copies are put together, they're laid out, and they're compared and the original can then be reconstructed from the copies without, with pretty much absolute certainty. And so let's look at some of the other writings from antiquity and compare them to the New Testament. We have a few. Uh, Thucydides is a guy who was a Greco-Roman historian, and his writings are trusted by scholars uh, as historically accurate, and we have exactly eight copies of the works of Thucydides. Can you see my little eight there? Maybe you in the back will have a hard time with that. But the earliest copy of those eight copies is from 1,300 years after he wrote what he wrote. Okay, Thucydides. Aristotle's Poetics. We know of five copies of Aristotle's Poetics 
We have five. And the earliest copy was dated 1,400 years after he actually wrote Aristotle. Caesar's Gaelic Wars describe events in 58 BC when Caesar, um, Julius Caesar was trying to take over the region known as Gaul. And he wrote about his experiences. And we have 10 copies of that original work. And the earliest copy is from 1,000 years after his death, after he wrote. Alexander the Great has a couple of biographies. And Alexander the Great, we have two copies of those uh, originals. And the earliest is from 400 years after his death. In all of these situations, I have represented one sheet of paper with each copy. Okay, so there's two pages for Alexander the Great, and there's eight for Thucydides. And for the Iliad, which is our last example, uh, Homer wrote the Iliad, and it does a lot better. It has 643 copies. The earliest of those copies are from 500 years after he wrote the Iliad, which uh, documents some of the things that happened in the history of Greece. All right? What about the New Testament? If you got, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I I forgot to uh, represent Homer. I didn't have 653, so here's a stack of 750. We'll give Homer the benefit of the doubt. There's Homer, there's Thucydides, there's the Poetics, there's the Wars, There is uh, Alexander the Great right there. That stack represents five ancient, the earliest copies from 400 to 1400 years. And that's all we have for those five ancient writings. What about the New Testament? If you were given a um, a ream of paper, would you bring it to the stage right now? And we're gonna pile them up right here. I need two or three guys from over here in the student section. Would you help us pile all of these uh, up over right here, and we're going to compare what we have for the New Testament with what we have for those five ancient sources. Thank you so much for doing this little exercise. Each stack that we are piling up over here to my right represents 500 sheets of paper, okay? 500 sheets of paper. When it's all said and done, we had to use every ream of paper we could find in this church, okay? And every ream of paper that we could find amounted to 50 reams of paper, each with 500 sheets in each ream, and uh, somebody add that, multiply that, what, what, is it, what does it amount to? Some of you mathematics people out there. 25,000 copies of the New Testament is what we have. Okay, well, that's significant, right? Are they early? Oh, man, they're not from 400 years. They're not from 1,400 years. They're from 25 to 30 years after the originals were written in the first century. That's when our earliest copies are from. Isn't any wonder why people have lost trust in this book? People trust these as historically accurate, as historically reliable, as trustworthy. But this pile of evidence gets the shaft. How does that work? 
Frederick Kenyon said this, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the books and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts so short as that in the New Testament. We, we have early testimony. Number two, we ha- not only have early testimony and a lot of it, right? But we have eyewitness testimonies. Eyewitnesses are the number one best way to determine what really happened. If you want to determine what happened sometime, you need eyewitnesses. And do we have eyewitnesses in this account? All over the New Testament, I have included all the scriptures that refer to writers of this book saying, I was there, or I saw this, or I was an eyewitness, or we were eyewitnesses of what what uh, Jesus did and said, um, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Luke, Hebrews, John, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, Peter, Paul, John, all claim to be eyewitnesses. Luke and the writer of Hebrews claim to be informed by eyewitnesses if they weren't eyewitnesses of some of the things that they saw uh, uh, originally. All four gospels mention women as witnesses, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna. In Acts chapter one, the the people that were considered to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles, one of the criteria was, were they a witness to Jesus's resurrection? And all those guys were. And so if we have written documents within 25 to 30 years after Jesus' life, then it means this, that the eyewitness sources that we have on which the writings were based, they go back even earlier, surely even to the lifetime of Jesus himself. So do we have eyewitnesses? Yes. And Paul implies this in 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't imply it. He just lays it out. He says there were 14 eyewitnesses whose names are known, the 12 apostles, and he lists James, who is the brother of Jesus, and he lists Paul himself. He lists his own name. And then he references an appearance that Jesus made after he was resurrected to 500 other people at one time. And included in that group was a skeptic who was James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul himself, who was an outright enemy of Christianity. And by naming so many people who could verify what Paul was saying, Paul was in effect challenging his Corinthian readers to check him out. William Lilly puts it this way, what gives special authority to the list as historical evidence is the reference to, the most, uh, to most of the 500 brethren still being alive. Paul is saying, if you do not believe me, you can ask them. Such a statement in an admittedly genuine letter written within 30 years of the event is almost as strong evidence as one could hope to get for something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Not only are there eyewitnesses, but the eyewitnesses are credible. They stand before religious authorities with boldness and confidence, and they're accurate. Luke, in his book, Uh, the gospel that bears his name, and then the book of Acts. Somebody went through a researcher and pulled out 140 minor details about his account that cannot be known unless you are an eyewitness, unless you are there, or unless you are interviewing somebody that was there. In just the book of Acts, there are 84 historically confirmed details in Luke's writing. Now, why does that matter? Why it matters is he gets them all right. It matters because alongside those 84 
minor details of history and shipbuilding and this and that. Beside that, he gives 35 major details about miracles that happened as the early church grew. Why can we trust that he's telling the truth about the miracles? It's because we can trust that he's told the truth about the details of history. And we could say the same about John. We could say the same about Matthew. We could say the same about Mark because it's the same story. New Testament writers mention historical figures in their writing. At least 30 historical figures have been confirmed by archaeology or non-Christian sources. So we can say with absolute certainty, the guys who wrote this book were there. They were eyewitnesses. We have early testimony. We have eyewitness testimony. Number three, we have embarrassing testimony. Embarrassing, that's kind of weird. But here's the truth. Most people do not like to record negative information about themselves. And so any information that makes the author of a writing look bad is probably true. We could frame it up this way. If you and your friends were concocting a story that you wanted to pass off as truth, would you make yourself look like a dim-witted, uncaring, doubting coward in your story, in your own story? Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. But that's exactly what we find in the New Testament. We find these embarrassing details about the people that called themselves disciples. They are dim-witted. They don't understand Jesus. They're uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus. They're rebuked. Jesus calls Peter Satan. They are cowards. They all flee and hide out when Jesus goes to the cross. And the heroes in the story are the women who actually gather around the cross for the crucifixion. They doubt. They doubt the resurrection. They doubt the resurrection when they're taught about the resurrection. Jesus says, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, they're gonna kill me and I'm gonna rise three days later. And they say, nah, uh, that's not gonna happen. And then they doubt the resurrection when they hear about the resurrection. Jesus is is alive. No, he's not. Nope. Unless I see uh, nail prints in his hand, I'm not gonna believe that. They doubt when they hear about it. They doubt when uh, when they are taught about it. And lastly, they doubt when the resurrection stares them straight in the face. It's Matthew 28, 17. Jesus has walked around on the earth after coming out of the grave for several days and he is going to go to heaven. And before that, he gets his people together and he says, this is, this is my mission before I leave. This is what I want. And what Matthew records for us is some believed and some doubted. The resurrected Christ was right in front of them and they still doubted. Timothy Keller calls that credibility from counterproductive content. There's no reason you would include a detail like that if you weren't writing the truth. Probably the greatest counterproductive content is the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. No man in the first century, if you're making up a story about the resurrected Jesus, would write it that way. They would all want to be the heroes, but there the women are. Why? Because the writers are writing not what they want to write. They're writing what happened. Number four, we have excruciating testimony. Why would the apostles lie? This is what Peter Kreef says. If they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. That's hardly a list of all the first disciples had to do 
to avoid excruciating deaths, to avoid suffering, to avoid persecution, was to say that Jesus did not rise from the grave, but they never did. They died first. Number five, expected testimony. This is what Jesus points to with the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. There's prophecy from the Jewish scriptures, which is about there, okay, the first uh, chunk of your Bible. Those are the Jewish scriptures. And Jesus points to those because those scriptures tell of a guy that will come called the Messiah. And they tell us what he will do. And they tell us what he will look like. They tell us his mission. They even tell us about his death. Isaiah 53 is what you want to read if you want to read about that. And so Jesus points to that section of the book. And beginning from that section of the book, he tells these two on the road, all Moses and the prophets, what they had to say about him and the things concerning himself. Number six, extra biblical testimony. Evidence that corroborates your story from outside sources is something very valuable. And we have a ton of that when it comes to this book. One of the outside sources that we could talk about a little bit is archaeology. I'm not going to do that, but we could talk a lot about the archaeological find, finds that support the biblical people and places that are mentioned in this book. But what I want to talk about specifically are 10 non-Christian ancient sources all from within 150 years of Jesus's life that give us details about Jesus and give us details about early Christianity. In contrast, in the same 150 years, there are only nine sources that mention Tiberius Caesar. Why is that important? Because Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor who was alive at the time that Jesus was Alive. Only nine people cite Tiberius Caesar. Ten talk about Jesus. Does that tell you something? If you include the Christian writers into that number, the, the times that Jesus is mentioned compared to the times that Tiberius Caesar is mentioned is 43 to 10. Some of these sources who write and tell us a little bit about Christianity are anti-Christian. That's important. If opponents of the eyewitnesses admit certain facts that the eyewitnesses say are true, then those facts are probably true. More credit, there's more credibility when your arch enemy says the same thing that you do, right? We could frame it up this way. If your mom says that you're a good baseball player, well, she's your mom, right? But if the opponent's shortstop says that you're a good baseball player, oh, you have instant credibility now, don't you? And that's where some of these non-Christian sources help us. And we can learn from these non-Christian sources. If we piece together all the things that these outside sources say about Jesus and the church, here's what we learn. Number one, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Number two, he lived a virtuous life. Number three, he was a wonder worker. What's that code for? Miracles. Yeah, they won't write it, but they'll just say, oh, he was a wonder worker. Four, he had a brother named James. Five, 
He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. Number six, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Number seven, he was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Number eight, darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. Number nine, his disciples believed he rose from the dead. Number 10, his disciples were willing to die for their belief. That was typed incorrectly. I'm responsible for that. Number 11, Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. Number 12, his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. We know all of those things outside of the Bible, outside of all of these copies, outside of that book, if all of that got wiped away, we would still know the basic story of Christianity because of what the outside sources wrote. That's astounding to me. In addition, it goes deeper than that. If we pay attention to number five and number six and number nine and number 12, then what we have are the letters that we, we, we spent so many weeks on. Number five, he was acclaimed as the Messiah. He's the king sent from God. Number six, he was crucified by Pilate. He was nailed to a cross. Number nine, his disciples believed that he rose again, that he overcame the death, uh, the, uh, death and the grave. And number 12, that he was worshiped as God. Do you realize what this means? It means that we can literally know Jesus as Savior and Lord without all of that, if we had to. (laughs) The Bible, though, is a divine book. It's incredibly difficult to deny in light of the evidence. But the point today is not information. The point is transformation. And so... Let's go back to that question that we started with. If the Bible can be shown to be trustworthy and reliable by the standards of historical research, will you consider that it might be true for you and allow it to change your life as it has for millions of people throughout history? This book is true. The question today is, will it be true for you? That's the question. The changes that you're looking for in your life this book can give you. There's a guy named Charles Chu, and he's not necessarily writing about reading the Bible. He's just writing about reading in general. And this is what he says in his very first line, in the time you spend on social media each year, you could read 200 books. Do you know how many books are in this book? There's 66. What are you saying, Dusty? You're saying to get rid of all my social media? No, I'm just asking you to ask the question, why are you going to the words on that screen? Are you not after some form of love, some form of joy, some form of happiness, some form of connection to other people? And I'm just asking you, would you consider that maybe this book could lead you to more love and more connection and more peace and more joy than those words on your screen? That's all I'm saying. Tyndale House Publishers commissioned a study by the Barner Research Group and found evidence that simply reading this book promotes a positive outlook. 82% of regular Bible readers describe themselves as at peace. Let me ask you, are you at peace? 
78% of regular Bible readers say that they felt happy all or most of the time. Let me ask you, do you feel happy all or most of the time? 68% of regular Bible readers said that they were full of joy. Would you say that today? Can you say that? Do you get it? The way to peace, the way to joy, the way to more feelings of happiness is to simply read this book. It gets better than that. Because I could ask, what are you struggling with right now? Some of us struggle with alcohol. Guess what? Research has been done. And if you will engage this book four times or more this week, the chances you get drunk this week go down by 57%. Research has been done. Are you struggling with sex outside of marriage? Engage with this book more than four times this week, and the chances you have sex with somebody outside uh, your marriage, somebody not your spouse, go down by 68%. Do you struggle with pornography? A lot of us do. If you engage with this book more than four times this week, the chances you watch porn this week go down by 61%. Do you struggle with gambling? A lot of us do. Engage with this book more than four times this week, and the chances that you let the house win this week go down by 74%. Maybe I didn't uh, hit where you are. Maybe I didn't mention what you struggle with. It doesn't matter. Put whatever you struggle with in that blank, whatever habit you're trying to conquer right now. If you will engage this book more than four times this week, the chances you give in to that thing that is ruling your life go down by 57%. Did you catch the key there? The researchers call it the power of four. And I don't know why it works. I just know that the research backs it up. If you engage with this book once, well, that's good, but nothing's gonna happen. If you engage with this book two or three times, that's, that's great, but it's not gonna amount to much. But for some reason, four times or more, and all of those benefits start to kick in. Isn't it amazing that we could, Learn from the psalmist that says, I get life from your word. Every day I wanna go, it is like I'm a tree planted by a river when I engage in this book over and over again. Your discipleship task this week, should you choose to accept it, is this. Read the Bible with the power of four. Read the Bible with the power of four. When you engage the The Bible, more than four times this week, your odds of sharing your faith with other people go up 228% higher. Your odds of discipling other people uh, are 231% higher. Your odds of memorizing scripture that you're reading are 407% higher. And all of that is doing the mission that Jesus has called us to do. We are to share people, uh, share Jesus with people so that they can know him and then bless others in the same way that we have been blessed. And this book will help us to take the steps necessary to be able to do that. I'm gonna call the band up and while they come, I just wanna talk about one other thing that you might be struggling with when it comes to this book. You might be reading this book and you might be saying, you know what? I've read it and there are a whole bunch of laws in there. There are a whole bunch of things in there that I can't do. I've tried but I just can't, I can't get over this, you know, 
uh, I just, I can't measure up to this book. And I want to suggest to you that if that's the way you're reading it, that there's a new and different way to read it. See, the point of this book is not that we measure up. The point of this book, if you're reading it correctly, is that we can't measure up. That no matter what I do, I cannot keep the laws contained in this book and I need somebody to succeed for me. That's the point of this book. That's what it points me to. It points me to a person named Jesus who came to the earth and lived the life that I could not live. He measured up to all of these laws and scriptures that I have no chance of measuring up to. And he said, I will live the perfect life for you so that you can measure up when it comes to God. And if you're reading it any, any other way, you're misreading it. The Bible's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has already done. Paul puts it this way, that we were cursed because we couldn't measure up to what the Bible told us to do. But Jesus came and became the curse for us so that we can live. You will be the same person five years from now as you are today, except for two things, the people that you meet and the books that you read. The incredible thing about reading this book is that it points you to the one person that can change your life more than any other person ever. Father, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We thank you for directing our steps. Would you help us to read, help us to listen, help us to hear your word. May it guide us every day to the truth that we are more sinful than we know. But because of what Jesus has done, we are more loved than we deserve. It's in his powerful resurrected name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. The challenge invitation today is simple. Engage the Bible this week more than four times. That's it. And so we're gonna sing as we conclude our time together today. Would you stand? And um, if you have uh, some prayer needs, there will be some people on the wings that can pray with you. Maybe you've never accepted this Savior. Um, you come as we sing.